I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I had a moment recently in Mass while on my way out with my two and a half year old who has quickly learned that if she just screeches a little bit, we'll take her out. So she ends up just making noise. So we take her out. We're working on it. Don't worry. But I'm making the long walk down the side aisle to the back with that sheepish look that many a Catholic parent has made at their fellow parishioners. The sorry, sorry, so sorry, please forgive us. I didn't mean to disturb you sheepish look. And as I got to the back, our parish has these French doors in the back into the foyer, the nave, so to speak. And the usher was standing there, the sweet man who's the head usher at the nine o'clock mass at our parish. And he pushed the door open for me as I walked out with my daughter. And he had this tender smile on his face. And I felt so cared for. The embarrassing mom walk of shame that every Catholic mom has made at some point in their life was all of a sudden made a little more tolerable, a little less frustrating because of this kind fellow parishioner who just greeted me with a smile. As if to say, it's no trouble, it's no problem. I get it. I get it. Aren't all of us who walk into Mass on Sunday, who step into an adoration chapel for a brief moment of quiet prayer, who are searching for something when we place ourselves in front of the Blessed Sacrament, aren't all of us just looking to Jesus and around at one another, hoping to be greeted with some smiles, with a warm welcome, with a comforting nod of the head, with an acknowledgement that we're in this together. As Mass ended that Sunday and we were on our way out, the head usher walked up to me and I think we'd had such a, a precious moment earlier in Mass that he wanted to come say something to me and he walked up and, and I thought he was about to say something profound. And he instead reached his hand out and he said, I think you dropped this. And it was a toy that had been shoved into my pocket that had somehow fallen out. And I said, oh, thanks. And I grabbed it. And I said, thanks for opening the door. And he said, just doing my part. And it was just kind of this light bulb moment, just doing my part. All of us parts of the body, members of the body of Christ, all together, just doing our part, loving our Lord, encountering the Eucharist, and hoping in some small way to share that with the next person that we meet, the next person for whom we can open the door, the next person that we can give a smile to or a small word of encouragement, the next person that we can generously serve because we were once generously served in the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. We were once given Jesus in the Eucharist. And since we have been given something so great, we cannot help but turn to give it to others. This whole series on the Eucharist, I have been deeply affected and moved by the words of all of our guests, people telling their stories of encounter, people sharing their encouragement for how the Eucharist can come alive in our lives, what revival is and what it looks like and why it's happening and everything in between. And I have to tell you, at the beginning of the podcast season, we had a plan to sit down with the bishop that's very much been the public frontman and face of the Eucharistic Revival, Bishop Andrew Cousins. And then because of some scheduling conflicts, we weren't able to make it work. And I was feeling kind of glum just a couple of weeks ago thinking, well, we're not going to get Bishop Cousins for this particular season on the Eucharist. And, and that's okay. We'll get him another time. You know, I'm, I'm going to be with him this summer at a conference up at Franciscan. Maybe I can record him for something then. I was just kind of feeling down about it. And lo and behold, I found myself in Eucharistic adoration, filling in on one of those days where I, I get to go sub at my parish. And I'm kneeling down and the Lord invites us to pour our hearts out to him. The Lord asks us to share what's going on in our minds and in our hearts. And I, I just looked up at the monstrance and I looked up at Jesus and I said, I don't know what you're doing with this series. I don't know why you're doing it, but it'd be really great if I could talk to Bishop Cousins about the revival. And it almost felt kind of silly, like kind of making this request, like, hello, Lord, here are the things on my to-do list. Please make them happen. But I, I said it, I prayed the prayer. A couple days later, I sent one last email just to see, could we maybe try to get Bishop Cousins? 
And lo and behold, they emailed back and said, well, he might be available on a Saturday. Could you make that work? And I said, absolutely. I'll bend over backwards. Yes. And we were able to sit down with Bishop Cousins. And I really wanted to talk to him about the revival, not just because he understands it top to bottom, side to side, not just because he has a great perspective on what this can mean for America, not just because he himself loves Jesus and the Eucharist, but because you can just tell just in a few minutes of being with him that Jesus matters to him, that he knows Jesus, that he's encountered Jesus, that he's spent time with Jesus, and that he wants to tell you about Jesus. I can think of no one better to help round out our series on the Eucharist and really explain to us what that's, what's at the heart of this Eucharistic revival that we've been talking about for the past few weeks. This is all part of our Ave Explorer series. We're wrapping it up. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'd be really grateful if you'd share it with friends, if you'd maybe post a review, if you'd follow the show so that you can keep in touch with all of the great things that we're doing over the coming summer and into next year. But for right now, we'd love it if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation with Bishop Andrew Cousins about the heart of the revival. Bishop, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, the last time I saw you was on your birthday. So this is a real treat. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so great to be with you, Katie, and grateful to be a part of this show. Yeah, we are so excited we were able to find the time. Bishop, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are. You're up in rural Minnesota. I, I was telling somebody the other day, I've done my Minnesota tour. I was in Duluth, Minneapolis. Hey. I'm coming to Crookston in September. So I'm hitting the whole state up at some point in 2023. But where are you? Who are you? And what do you get to do? Yeah, so I'm the bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota. Crookston's a small town about an hour north of Fargo. Most people don't know there's anything north of Fargo, but <laughs> there's a whole diocese that's basically north of Fargo here. And so if you took Minnesota, the whole northern third of the state, half of it would be the Diocese of Crookston, the other half the Diocese of Duluth. Mm. And so we're about 66 parish, where it's in, in 14 counties up here. So we're one of the smallest dioceses in the country but a lot of beautiful people who live a lot of rural life, different manufacturing. We survive on sugar beets up here. That's our main crop, That's which is, thing. it's a great crop. And we've got some of the best farmland in the country up here. Were you, are you a Minnesota boy by trade, by life? Like you were born and raised there? I was born and raised in Colorado. I came to Minnesota through Net Ministries, yeah. the national evangelization teams. And I lived in St. Paul, Minneapolis for 30 years. So I was ordained a priest in St. Paul, Minneapolis, was an auxiliary bishop for eight years in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and then I was chosen to be the Bishop of Crookston. But the other thing, of course, you know about me is that I'm the chair of the Committee of Evangelization and Catechesis for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And I started doing that before I was Bishop of Crookston. And through that, I was also then became the chair of the National Eucharistic Revival, which the bishops have initiated as a national movement. And that falls under my committee work as that chair. So that's how I got into that work. When you became the chair of that committee before the revival had kind of started as we now have it, did you think like, I'm, I'm going to be at the helm of this massive moment in the church and that everybody's talking about and everybody's anticipating, or were you just like, I'll serve my time. Everybody's got to do it. You know, what, tell us that story. That's a great question. No, I did not think that. I mean, I, I thought we might do some fun things and I'm always up for the Holy Spirit doing some fun things. But like most of the really important things in my life, they came to me from God. It wasn't an idea that I came up with. Mm -hmm. And actually it was Bishop Barron who had the idea of doing some kind of national movement of renewal around the Eucharist, even back in 2019 and 19 and 20, when he was still chair of the committee, I took over in the fall 2020. And so it was, he, he you had the idea but it was the Holy Spirit who decided it was going to be so big mm -hmm. because it was really after we sort of got the initial go ahead from the bishops in the fall of 2020, and we started building it in 2021 that I began to realize in consulting with people around the country, experts around the country, that really the, the church was crying out for something like this. And the church was desperately desiring a revival in her Eucharistic faith. And so many people saw the need and were so excited that the bishops wanted to do this. Yeah. Tell us that story. I mean, you, your fall of 2020 was a strange time in history, in the church. I had a baby in 2020 and I think I've like blocked out a lot of that. Uh, and now those COVID kids are all going to preschool next year. And I think every parent's looking around being like, how did we survive? And I think a lot of right. church life was much the same. Like, how did we survive 
have we survived? You know, what was happening in your head and your heart during that time? Yeah, so one of the ironies is we had the first meetings about the Eucharistic revival with Bishop Barron leading committee heads of the USCCB in January 2020 and in February 2020. We had a, a meeting each month to plan this initiative, which we were going to roll out in June of 2020 to the bishops. And then from there forward, you know, but nobody knew what was happening in March. And in March of 2020, the world shut down. And that was undeniably one of the more difficult things I've had to live through as a bishop, the pain of having to make the decision, which it was a decision that the bishop had to make, and who knows if it was the right decision, but it was a prudential decision that we had to make to not have public masses for some time, even, even Easter. I remember thinking, like, can the church survive if we don't celebrate Easter? Mm. And I think you're right, we're still recovering from a lot of that pain. We had to fight really hard to get the churches back open in the state of Minnesota, and thankfully all the bishops in Minnesota were willing to take a stand against the governor together, and we did that, and we were able to get our churches open. But by the time we were able to meet as bishops and talk about the Eucharistic revival, it was like, oh my gosh, we really do need this. Not just because the Pew study said that only 30% of Catholics believe in transubstantiation, but rather the church is crying out for revival. And to me, that really, I, I think the Eucharistic revival touched a deeper core in the church, which was the pain that we had all been feeling from the, the crisis of disaffiliation and of course, we're still living in that pain. It's very much a part of our daily lives. As I go around the diocese to, you know, to see that churches have diminished, you know, and everyone feels that. I was just talking this morning, you know, we're going to confirm 10 young people at the cathedral here in Crookston. Crookston's a small town, but I was with the parents of some of those being confirmed. They said, well, there's a hundred when I was confirmed, mm -hmm. right? And so you feel the diminishment and the church I think, then feels the need for revival. Of course, the church always is in need of revival. This is not just something of the late, you know, early 21st century. Always at different times in the history of the church, we've needed a revival and, and we need one now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what everyone is feeling. And then, you know, to have it be about the Eucharist, the Eucharist is the heart of the church. It's the heart of the church. It's, it's the beating heart of the church. And if we're living our Eucharistic life, right, then the church is going to be fully alive. And if we're not, the church is going to diminish. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a real sense of if we can revive the heart of the church, then we can be strengthened in what we need to be for the sake of the world. Uh, you know, it basically began there with this kind of angst of November of 2020 when the bishops were meeting. And then we just began to build it. And I guess we didn't realize it was going to be so big until November of 2021. And that's mm -hmm. when I stood up in front of all the bishops and said, I think we should have a National Eucharistic Congress. Mm -hmm. So we haven't done that since 1941, right? But I think we should have a National Eucharistic Congress. It would be our 10th, but nobody remembers the first nine, mm -hmm. right? But when we put it before the bishops, in fact, I remember so well because I was up there talking and, you know, in the bishops' council, we vote with these clickers. <laughs> and so you, you actually your vote with an electronic clicker that you hold in your hand. And I forgot my clicker at my seat. And so I'm up in front talking. And I turned to Archbishop Thompson from Indianapolis, who's standing next to me because he's going to be the host city for this National Eucharistic Congress. I said, do you have your clicker? He says, no, mine's at my seat. I thought, oh, no, we're down two votes. This thing might not pass. You know? <laughs> but then when he took the vote, I, I think I remember it right. It was something like 205 to 12. Yeah. It was over 90% of the bishops said, yes we need to do this. It's a huge risk, mm -hmm. but we need to do it because we need a national movement to unite us. And we need a national moment like a Eucharistic Congress to really bring us together as the church United States and really to ask the Holy Spirit for the revival that we need. I love that answer of we need a movement and a moment. And as you were speaking, I kept thinking to myself, you know, at the heart of revival is new life. And if right, we need okay. new life, then that means that something has died, that something has, okay. has diminished, that a light has gone out in some sense. And so this is going to sound like a strange example, but the parish that we go to, we just had our, um, our steeple bells restored. They haven't mm. rung for 40 years. And mm. it was only like a $2,000 repair. They, they asked mm. four families to donate $500 and we fixed our bells. And now the bells are going to mm. ring every hour and they're going to ring at noon for the Angelus. Mm -hmm. And it's such a huge thing in the neighborhood that was so little cost. I think nobody just ever put forth the effort. And, and I feel like this Eucharistic revival 
it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, why haven't we been doing this? Like, why haven't we been doing these Congresses? This requires just the bare minimum of we're going to invest ourselves. We're going to invest this time, this energy, this money, these resources, because we know it's going to have this massive impact in these significant ways. But I want to go back to this. If revive revival, this new life is coming. That means that something has died. How have you seen that in your priesthood? You worked with net ministries. That's really where your vocation was born. You've had a, a lot to see that the church has suffered through and has experienced. Why do you think some of that has died? And how do you think we can specifically address that with this kind of a revival? Yeah, I, well, I think if you were going to say, how did something die? You know, the big word would be secularism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would just be that we're living in a post-Christian culture and you know, the old analogy of the frog that you can boil in water if you just kind of keep gradually turning up the water because the frog will never notice that the water becomes boiling and it won't hop out of the out of the sink. And that's, of course, the way the enemy of our human nature likes to work in a way that's not noticed. And so what we've gradually seen in our culture is just a kind of gradually drifting away, you know, and we've seen our culture basically begin to take very divergent positions about human life and, you know, what makes for a good human life and what is a human being and all these kind of basic questions that, that 20, 30 years ago, nobody would have questioned and nobody would have asked. And not because we were just kind of blindly being led, but because we had a kind of Christian worldview Mm. and gradually that Christian worldview has just been lost. And so if parents didn't get that Christian worldview, they weren't able to hand it on to their children. And then you go to, you, you know, you, you leave home, maybe you even went to mass every Sunday, but you didn't get a Christian worldview and you leave, go to college and you were presented with a completely other set of worldview that has its own kind of way to make sense at times. And so that can actually have a big impact on people. I think another aspect of it is really, and this is kind of the, you know, what I was saying, the church is always needing to be reformed. And this, so this happens throughout all time where people lose the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And this is where I think Pope Francis's first encyclical on the joy of the gospel just made it so clear, like what is a disciple and what is a missionary disciple? And so that fact, as he says in that document, he says, it's not the same thing to know Jesus as not to know him. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing to have encountered Jesus as not to have encountered him. And yet we have a generation of people that we often raise in the faith that, that don't know that Catholicism at a certain point wasn't always leading to that authentic discipleship where a person had an encounter with the living Jesus and that encounter changed that. Hmm. When people have that, they don't leave the church, right? Because despite all the difficulties in the church, they've, they've encountered Jesus and they know what it means to be a disciple and they want to be close to him. And then they, they can be formed into how the Eucharist and the whole life of the church is meant to bring, keep them close. But so I think we also, you know, more than just the culture going against us, we didn't always invite people to authentic discipleship, not through anyone's fault often, but it just didn't always happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, again, I think the Eucharistic revival is coming back to this truth of, we need to bring people to an encounter with the living Jesus, because that's the heart of discipleship. Yeah. And so if this death has occurred from these two areas, life is found in Jesus Christ present in the blessed sacrament. What do you think is the best methodology to articulate that? Or is it kind of this like 10 prong approach? We have to come at it from all these different angles because the the boiling water we're in it. And, and so like we, right. we can't hop out necessarily, but how, how do we, how do we stop that? Do you have like this long-term vision for what this will look like as this unfolds. I mean, I know the revival itself has a pilgrimage component and a Congress component and a a leader playbook where things are happening at parish levels. But I mean, you at the end of the day, when you're thinking about this, what do you think is the most effective way to articulate that to people? I'd go back to St. Paul VI and his encyclical on evangelization in the modern world, which I think is really central. Pope Francis even said to me when I met, we were meeting with him as at our limited visits, he said that was his favorite cycle. Mm. (laughs) And Paul VI said this, in the long run, is there any other way to hand on the faith than one person sharing their personal faith story with another? Mm. That's, I think, ultimately what we need. Missionaries. (laughs) We need 
every Catholic to understand that they're called to share. Now, to get Catholics to that place, right? And, and when you share, what are you inviting? What are you sharing? You're sharing about a relationship. You're sharing about an encounter, right? And so everything we're doing in the Eucharistic revival is, I think, to facilitate that encounter. But the key kind of moments that facilitate that encounter are witnesses, people who give testimony in faith, but that allow people to respond, right? Give you an example. When I was a parish youth, a priest, a young parish priest, we took a bunch of young people to the student book conference, as a lot of people do. And I had a, one young person on this weekend retreat who was making it clear that he did not want to be there <laughs> and that his parents made him come. But right before, of course, he'd been hearing testimonies and talks all weekend, right? And right before adoration, I kind of went up to him and I, I said to him in a way that challenged him, I put my finger in his chest and I said, Jesus wants to do something in you tonight. And he was like, oh, I Oh, yeah, right. You know, well, at the end of the night, after the time of adoration, when the blessed sacrament comes around the auditorium and he had a chance to be an encounter with the Lord, he came up to me with tears in his eyes and he said, how did you know? Mm. So, well, I know Jesus, <laughs> right? And he never missed youth group after that. Wow. Changed his life, right? Yeah. Because he had an encounter. But what, what facilitated that encounter? Community coming together around him. A testimony that happened and then the Lord really present in the Eucharist yeah. that facilitated that encounter. And it's, it's, so it's a multi-pronged approach, but at the heart of it is the, is the personal witness or the personal testimony, which then can invite people to the encounter. So even the two things that I think are important about the pilgrimages, one, we're going to hold up the Lord and honor him. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good thing to do. And we're going to intercede as we honor the Lord for the country, as we walk across the country. Right. But two, it's really a, something to try to provoke a question, right? Like, why, did, why are Catholics doing this? Why would we do this? Well, that is, we want to provoke that question because mm -hmm. then we can give testimony. We can give witness to what we're doing, right? And then we can invite them to be part of a community. But the other thing that happens, and this is part of revival, is that the heart gets revived through devotion. And so when I spend time in a holy hour, when I do a Eucharistic procession and I sing to Jesus in that procession and I do something public for my faith like that, or when I start deciding I'm going to go to daily mass more, or when I start to understand what happens at the mass and begin to seek to live my life that way, those things revive me, hmm. right? This is what the Eucharist wants to do, revive me. And that can make me a witness that I need to be. Yeah, that all of those things together Nothing is casual in any of that. You know, like I, I, I have a holy hour every week and sometimes I'm annoyed that I have to go because it's like, golly, there's so much to do on my to-do list that I convince myself would be more fruitful than just going and sitting in front of Jesus for an hour. And every time I walk out, I'm like, okay, well, that was the most important hour of the week. Like everything else will now fall into place. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Bishop Cousins. I, I wanted to just take a second and tell you about today's sponsor, West Coast Catholic is a Catholic lifestyle brand that desires to bring an essence of heaven into your everyday life through their intentionally designed home goods, lifestyle products, and prayer tools. They're inspiring their customers to deepen their faith and fill their lives with the beauty of the church with a modern aesthetic. Their stuff is absolutely beautiful. I have a couple of their rosaries and, and art pieces, and I just, I love seeing them. I love praying with them. You can check out their brand new Marian collection, the Mater Nostra collection, inspired by the most beloved Marian apparitions, shop at westcoastcatholic.com and follow them on Instagram at shop.wcc. We're grateful that they sponsored today's episode, which we're going to jump back into right now. Bishop, you mentioned faith stories and you mentioned testimonies, and that's really the thing that draws people in. I have to tell you, a few weeks ago, I, I asked on Twitter, I was like, I want to interview a bishop about their mom. I have another podcast about motherhood. And like eight different people texted me and said, oh, you got to talk to Bishop Cousins about his mom. I was like, well, I have this other thing I have to do with him first, but I'll, I'll ask him eventually. <laughs> this other thing is more important for now. But I, I want to hear your faith story. You know, I, I don't yeah. know you all that well, but I, I hear your name right. all the time because of the revival and because of this great work that you're doing. Can you tell us, yeah. you know, young man comes to Minnesota like what that faith journey was like for you that has led you to this moment of, look, I know Jesus and I love him and I've given my life to him. Yeah. 
Well, for me, it certainly did start in my family and it is a bit of a long story, but you know, I was a sick kid as a, as a baby and my mother almost lost the pregnancy. In fact, she was told to, to end the pregnancy by, by the first doctor, you know, because I was supposed to be severely deformed. Thank God that we got a new doctor and, and, and all things turned out well. But because of that, and you can, you know, you, you know, as a mom, like I, I've often prayed about this, like what my parents went through when they thought I might die, in the womb, mm. you know, yeah. when they were told by the first doctor and like what the, the suffering and the prayer, like how much they must have prayed to God, please, Jesus, don't let our child die. You know? And so you grow up in that sense of my life was spared, you know, and my parents would eat. My mom especially would tell me this. she would say, God spared your life because he has a plan for it. And your job is to figure out what that plan is. Mm. And, and then when I was in the first grade, my parish priest was never able to explain this to me. But for some reason, he chose me out of all the other boys and girls in the first grade to make my first communion, my first confession and first communion early. Mm. So he came into the classroom and he said, is Andrew Cousins here? I said, yes, Monsignor. He said, can you step out in the hallway? I said, yes, Monsignor. And he <laughs> said, do you know your act of contrition? I thought I was really in trouble, you know? <laughs> I said, <laughs> said, yes, Monsignor. He said, start saying it. You're going to make your first confession. So I made my first confession in the hallway of the school. And then he said, tell your mom this Sunday you're making your first communion. So I made my first communion early because he wanted me to serve mass for him before he retired from the parish. Oh, wow. And I have a very distinct memory of him teaching me to genuflect, Mm. like why we genuflected and what it meant for Jesus's presence and him teaching me how to set the altar and him talking about the corporal and the sacred things that happened on the corporal, where this, this is where the bread and wine are changed into the body, blood of Jesus, you know? And so that reverence and that love impacted me from a very, very young age. So I never doubted Jesus's presence in the Eucharist. I just never doubted it. Yeah, so it was always kind of a part of my life. And I had to go through all the other things that teenagers go through and all the questions, but there were just moments along the way where the Lord showed up mm. in powerful ways to confirm that he was real and that he was calling me, that, that led me, you know, to be where I am today. Tell me about when you became a net missionary, what that was like for you, how you discerned, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this crazy thing. I remember when I mentioned net to my parents after high school, they laughed at me and said, no, you're going to college. You're not doing that. <laughs> like there, and my parents are daily mass going Catholics. They thought it was nuts, <laughs> but you, you do this radical yeah. thing. And, and it was it there that the priesthood really started to kind of take root in your mind. I hadn't thought about priesthood a lot. And in fact, even in college was, was in a, was in a charismatic prayer group. And I was with a, a group of basically men that ended up all being priests. We couldn't ever get women to join our prayer group. And we couldn't figure out why. Well, I'm sure they could see like all these guys are going to be priests. <laughs> there are 10 priests out of my time at Benedictine college wow. in, in the late eighties, early nineties. One of them is the abbot of the monastery. Oh, wow. It's Abbey there. So three of them became monks. The rest of us spread out around the country. So already I was kind of thinking about priesthood mm-hmm. and just discerning where to go when I came to NET. I remember really what NET taught me was the gift of living your life completely for God. You know, mm-hmm. I remember I would read those passages in the gospels where it says, you know, when you go on a journey, don't take an extra walking stick and, and uh, just, just go and accept whatever you receive along the way. And I thought, this is the closest in my life I'm ever to living those things. I had one suitcase. <laughs> my guitar and, and we, uh, we, you never knew where your next meal was going to come from. You were always staying at host homes and it was just, it was a beautiful way to live. And so it actually helped me to say yes to my vocation, I think in very powerful ways, mm-hmm. you know, it was also a place where I learned the beauty of sharing your faith, you know, and I have very distinct memories of being in a church, you know, praying with a young person who's sharing something difficult that they're going through and, and seeing Jesus work in them and touch them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm still in touch with some of the young people who were on retreats when I was a missionary. Yeah. Some of them, I did their weddings and baptized some of their children and they're still friends, but because the Lord works in those powerful, powerful ways. Yeah. I love that. I love that. There's a history right there. There's a longevity to that, all rooted in a love of Jesus Christ, that the the bonds that are formed, I mean, I I mentioned earlier, this young priest friend, Uh that's kind of like our our family priest and, and none of, we, we all had to laugh because on Tuesday night, my daughter graduated kindergarten and father Andy is the one that gave her her kindergarten diploma. 
And then came over for cookie cake and pizza afterwards. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's my kids call him Frunkle Andy because I remember him as a little kid. And there's this tether now of, you know, this this love of Jesus that I shared with you when you were in my youth group. You're now able to share as a parish priest in our community, restoring the bells and passing out kindergarten diplomas and saying mass on Sunday morning for all of us. There's the Eucharist is the the source and summit. It's that root that's right there. And people loving Mm -hmm. the Eucharist changes the world. Uh, tell us a little yes. bit about the idea behind this pilgrimage, especially. Joel talks a lot about the Congress in his episode that folks heard last week. Right. But it was just announced from four corners of the country. Literally, people right. are going to walk behind Jesus for thousands of miles. They're coming through Lake Charles. I can't wait. What, what was the thinking here? Because some people might look at this. The criticism would be that's the most impractical thing ever. Like, what's the point? But then those of us who have been on pilgrimages or who have you know, taking time for holy hours, we look at it and we're like, that's genius. Tell us the thought there. Yeah, I think it brings together several important Catholic things, mm-hmm. you know. So first and foremost, a love of, of the Eucharist and a love of Jesus in the Eucharist and this idea that the Eucharist is our guide. Mm-hmm. Even the even the symbol that we have for the pilgrimage has the, has the compass with the Eucharist as an, at the center, you know. And so this idea that the Eucharist is our guide because it's, it contains all the spiritual wealth of the church, which is Jesus, you know? And so it's, it strengthens us. It, it leads us on the way. So I think that, I think the, the whole idea of public demonstration of our faith and procession and intercession, this is a very Catholic instinct, you know? And you saw this during the pandemic, like, you know, we had bishops flying in planes with the blessed sacrament mm-hmm. over cities and blessing them. You had, processions happening around cities. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this goes back to like, say, Charles Borromeo, when he had a plague, what did he do? He did the same thing. They took the blessed sacrament and they processed around the city to pray for protection and intercession. And everybody knows our country is in a crisis, especially a crisis of faith. And so to kind of cross the country with the blessed mm-hmm. sacrament and to pray and process and intercede for our country is such a beautiful symbol even if nobody pays attention, you know, it's like, no, we're doing this for the Lord Mm -hmm. and to ask him to bless our country. And then, yeah, the third idea is the idea of pilgrimage, which is a very Catholic idea because life is a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we go all the way back to the old Testament when they made the pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land. Right. And how were they sustained on that pilgrimage? Well, of course it was the manna from heaven. And what does Jesus say? Your fathers ate man in heaven and they died, but I am the new man, right? Mm-hmm. I'm the bread of life and whoever eats this bread will live forever. And so this is a Eucharistic pilgrimage and it's emphasizing this idea that we're all on a pilgrimage in life and we're all headed to heaven and we're sustained on that journey by the daily celebration of the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. We often speak about it in terms of Emmaus and the beauty of Emmaus, like the Lord came and he walked with them. They didn't even always recognize that he was there, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't recognize him, but their hearts were burning because of his presence. And then, of course, in the celebration of the Eucharist, they come to know him, right? And this is what we really hope is that people will come and walk with us and that they'll come to the Mass and Mm -hmm. be drawn to the Mass. And, and, you know, we're going to bring the Eucharist on this pilgrimage. This was the other aspect of it. We didn't want, we know a lot of people can't get to Indianapolis for the Congress. And we wanted this to be a national movement. And so we didn't want it just to be something that happens in Indianapolis. And so this allows around the country there to be small events as we go. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take the Blessed Sacrament to prisons along the way. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go to homeless shelters along the way. And we're going to do service projects along the way. Mm-hmm. All of us testifying to the various aspects of, of the Eucharist, even as the Sacrament of Charity, right? Yeah. So it provides a way for people all along the route to participate in different ways and to experience this truth that life is a pilgrimage and that we're on our way someplace, you know. And anyone who's ever done a pilgrimage knows it's hard mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> and it's hard. And so, yep, logistically, it's a nightmare. <laughs> and there's going to be things that happen along the way, you know, that we can't predict. And that's what pilgrimage is about. But it's also the sense that the Lord is with us. And yeah. then through those trials and, and walking and, and struggles, I, in fact, experience great renewal interiorly. And I come away changed, you know. Mm-hmm. So we really want that. That's what we really want Indianapolis to be. This this experience where people, the church comes together and we come away changed, changed uh, into missionaries. Yeah. And that was going to be my, my last question, Bishop. The day after the Congress ends, 
after three years of this work of conversation, of logistics, of planning, of praying, of, of Joel put it this way, of, of setting up all these, these matches that can light fire and, and really kind of take, take root in a new way in our country. What's your hope? You, you finally get back to Crookston the day after the Congress is done and, and you go to bed that night. What do you hope has happened? I hope that we have several hundred thousand. So, I mean, we're expecting 75 to 100,000 people in Indianapolis, but there's going to be a lot of people who participate virtually. So I, I'm hoping that we have 700,000 people who recognize I have been given so much. Mm. I've been given Jesus who comes to live in me. And now I have to share that. I have a responsibility to spread that. And this is why the revival does not end with the Congress. The Congress is the beginning of the third year, which is the missionary year. We call it a three-year revival, but if you paid attention, we had a year zero. Right. <laughs> there, which was the, really the planning year, which was, you know, 21, 22. And then we began in the summer of 22, but we'd been talking about the revival at the Congress and every, at the U.S. Conference Bishops for a full year by that point. So everybody knew it was happening, but, and that's, the team was like, always like, Cousins, you said this was a three-year revival, but somehow it seems to be four. <laughs> but so we really, this is just, we're just beginning the second year, which to me is beautiful. We needed this kind of time to like get everybody's attention, to get everybody focused. And now we're going to really focus on parishes this year, you know, yeah. but the third year, we're really going to focus on mission and really building a missionary movement that goes forward, Eucharistic missionaries, you know. And we know that's a long-term goal. We're going to do a lot in that third year of the revival, but then we're going to try to do our best to keep people focused on mission because the church in the United States has to make that missionary conversion. Mm -hmm. We have to move from made into mission. How many times have we said that? But it's something that has to happen in every person's heart. So I hope that people feel so blessed after the Congress that that fire burns in them, that they feel with St. Paul, right? Like, I, I have to share this. Mm -hmm. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel because I've been given so much. Yeah. Bishop, our last question to everyone this season has been, you get a minute to talk to anyone of your choosing. Maybe somebody we all know or just, you know, somebody random, but you get a minute to talk to somebody. Tell us who that person is, kind of where they are in their faith journey, and what you share with them about the Eucharist. Yeah, I think if, if I could talk to anybody, it would be the parents who send their kids to a Catholic school or religious education program, but they don't go to Mass on Sunday, mm. right? These are the people my heart aches for because they haven't yet discovered the Eucharist, you know. And I guess what I would want to say to them is I'd want them to come to understand the depth of love that is waiting for them at mass and that their deepest desires, which are for love and communion and for meaning and purpose are actually going to be fulfilled here. So, you know, um, there's the simple truth of the Eucharist, right? Which is that the Paschal mystery of Jesus, which was his life, death and resurrection that happened 2000 years ago. And how does it reach me today? Mm -hmm. Well, it reaches me today because it becomes present through the priest at mass. And I'm invited to this experience of unchanging, infinite love that becomes present here. And it's for me. And it's for me in all of my brokenness and all of my weakness and ever, all of my need. This love of Jesus is for me and he wants to come into my heart and he wants to heal those places that feel empty and dry and desolate and broken. And he wants to allow me to experience what it truly means to be loved. Mm. And that will be fulfilled in my proper participation in the Eucharist. <laughs> that it really is the, the thing that will satisfy the longing of every human heart. And so I'd want to be able to speak to them about, about that longing in their heart that they have and try to show them that the, really the longing is found in him mm. and he is found here and he's longing to reconcile you in the sacrament of confession and he's longing to fill you in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the next stage of revival. If we can revive the family in this understanding, yeah. you've got a whole nother generation coming up to, to continue to live that. That's beautiful, Bishop. Thank you so much for telling us. 
I, I think there's a book in there. Write that book, and uh, and people will <laughs> people will be able to understand more fully. Bishop, where can we follow you and the work of the revival? Sign up for the Congress. You know, be a part of this pilgrimage. Where, where can we find all of it? Yeah. So you want to go to the eucharisticcongress.org. That's where you can follow the pilgrimage and the Congress and sign up for the Congress. And if you sign up there, you'll get regular updates about the work we're doing. And then you want to go to eucharisticrevival.org. So eucharisticcongress.org, eucharisticrevival.org. And you can sign up at eucharisticrevival.org. It just says, get involved. You can sign up to get a weekly newsletter from us. You can also follow us and all that's happening there. We've got a whole learn platform, incredible resources for small groups and parishes that can be used on our eucharisticrevival.org website. So those two websites allow you to keep in touch with this movement. Awesome. Bishop, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. God bless you for all you do. You know, I've had the pleasure of spending a little bit of time with Bishop Cousins and chatting with him. We have each other's cell phone numbers and it was quite beautiful. We were able to schedule this and finally make our calendars kind of collide in just the right way to be able to have this conversation. You know, just a couple of days later, I sent him a follow-up email to thank him for being a part of our conversation. And, And he sent me one back saying, well, thanks for being part of the work of the revival, which we're all part of. I don't think I can stress this enough, having been involved in some of the conversations around how to promote and support the Eucharistic revival that's underway. This podcast series is one of a number of awesome projects that are unfolding to support the work of the revival, to encourage people to understand what's happening with the revival and why this is such a significant and important thing that's happening in our country. And I just have to say, you know, these conversations about the Eucharist have maybe hopefully stirred something up within you, a desire perhaps, however small right now, but maybe growing, to invest a little bit more of your energy and your effort into understanding the Eucharist, into sharing about the Eucharist, into encouraging people to have a Eucharistic encounter themselves. That what we do at church on Sunday isn't just for church on Sunday, but is for the whole world, is for our families, is for our, our offices, is for the grocery store, is for literally the culture that we're a part of, and that hopefully we can change to reflect Jesus Christ. You can check out the work of the revival at the links down in our show notes. You can see everything that we've created for this series on the Eucharist over at AveMariaPress.com. And as we've been doing this entire season, we now want to bring to you an incredible conversation with one of the national Eucharistic preachers, Father Spitzer, one of my heroes, uh, an intellectual giant. And we sat down with Father Spitzer to talk for a bit about Eucharistic miracles and pick his brain about just the incredible way that the Lord has made himself present to us in these miraculous ways. Father Spitzer, welcome to Ave Explorers. Thanks so much, Katie. It's great to be with you. It's always great to see you. Always great to chat with you. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, what you get to do. I am the president of the Magia Center of Reason and Faith. I develop programs, curricula on this intersection of faith and science. I have a television program, Father Spitzer's Universe, on uh, EWTN, and uh, as I say, give a lot of uh, talks to a lot of people in a lot of places and publish <laughs> a lot of books and articles. <laughs> you are one of my favorites. Your books are on my shelf. Uh, my daughter's always captivated by the covers. They do a great job <laughs> putting <Yeah>. good <laughs> covers on the books. Father, how did your interest, you, you described it as this intersection of faith and reason. How did your interest in that area grow? Probably started in high school when I started having a few doubts about faith when I was reading Albert Camus and and, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and I thought, oh my gosh, I need some reasons for uh, the existence of God, et cetera, et cetera. And when nobody could tell me, I started my own personal exploration, and then the Holy Spirit led me to a whole bunch of different places. Uh, Number one, I found the singularity theorems in physics that uh, actually showed the likelihood of a beginning in general relativity theory and then I found proofs for the existence of God from metaphysics, particularly the proof of a fellow named Bernard Lonergan, a 20th century philosopher, very well known, and then a variety of other things. And all of a sudden I thought, you know, I wonder if other people are like me. And it turns out, as we know from the Pew surveys today, you know, that about 50% of the people today who are leaving the church, mm. not just the church, but leaving faith in God altogether, these are good church-going Catholic kids. They leave because they perceive a contradiction between faith and science. And I said, well, you know, as president of Gonzaga University, I was teaching a course in faith and science. 
I, I would get huge numbers of kids for these courses simply because they wanted to know. And so I had been doing the same thing at Georgetown previously, Seattle U previously. So I knew definitely the appropriateness of the topic, how important it was. And I'm going to devote a whole institute to doing it because no one else in the Catholic Church is doing it simply on the level of, you know, science-based apologetics for the faith. Yeah, you do great work. And and you mentioned the Pew Research that shows yeah. us disaffiliation. And, and many people say, oh, disaffiliation happens because people don't have a relationship or they don't have an encounter. But there is an intellectual disaffiliation going on, which means yeah. that there's an, an intellectual way to win people back. And I think mm-hmm. the Eucharistic revival, there's room for this conversation. People might hear Eucharist or they hear body, blood, soul, and divinity, or they, they mm-hmm. hear the stories of a Eucharistic miracle. And for maybe a half a second, they're like willing to suspend belief and, and almost yep. like play fantasy, like, okay, sure, I guess God could do that. But there are some scientific approaches to explaining the Eucharist. Can you talk to us about that and how you have approached that? Yeah, there are three in particular that are very important that have undergone extensive scientific investigation. First one is a 1996 Eucharist in Buenos Aires, overseen actually by Archbishop Bergoglio, now Pope Francis, of course. And then the second one is 2006 in Tixla, Mexico. That's the one that's of particular interest because there's so much scientific investigation, 19 different laboratory reports, et cetera, extensive scientific investigation by a fellow by the name of Dr. Ricardo Casignan Gomez. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And then finally, the, the 2008 Eucharistic Miracle in Sokolka, Poland, investigated by two very fine Polish histopathologists, but also... They did a lot of good electron uh, transmission, electron microscope screening, which has okay. proven to be very, very valuable in establishing uh, these facts. So the first you know, thought is, how come these are so spectacular? Because the lab results are indisputably showing three things. Number one, there is actual human heart tissue growing out of the substance of the host. Mm. Now, how do you know that it's heart tissue? because the tissue exams show the striated cardiac tissue, show that the tissue has operating white blood cells, which of course would normally, once separated from a human body, a circulatory system, for over three hours, every white blood cell would die. I mean, the fact that the white blood cells are still in the tissue Mm. and in blood in the tissue with AV blood type, you know, you look at that and you go, well, how's that possible? only if the cardiac tissue is alive. And of course, in all three Eucharistic hosts, the cardiac tissue is alive. And that has been shown by three different scientific exams. But the second thing that's of importance is by electron transmission, transmission electron microscope, you can actually see the fineness of the integration between the substance of the host and the substance of the cardiac tissue. This is on the level of the thin filaments of the myofibrils. Now you look at that myofibers and you look at that and you think to yourself, that's only a few micron separation. I mean, this is like teeny tiny. And I mean, we're not talking about linear kinds of, of interweaving. We're talking about very complicated, natural kinds of entangled interweavings, a few microns of separation between these hosts and the, the very, very thin filaments of the myofibril. Well, you look at that and you go, how's that possible? It's not possible. No human technology today. Uh, you know, every scientist who's investigated this, no human technology today can produce that kind of an integration between what appears to be a non-living substance of the host and the very much living cardiac tissue that is growing out of it. It is clearly anything we could produce, even if we wanted to fake it. The third thing that's very interesting well, uh, there's many things. In, in, <laughs> uh, this is one out of many, is that the fact is, is that it's wounded heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are uh, manifestations in this that the heart tissue has undergone some form of polytrauma or severe beating. And th- these can are, you know, indicated by segmentation, fragmentation in the tissue in some cases. Obviously, whenever you have active macrophages and white blood cells, they're involved in a healing process. That's what white blood cells do. Leukocytes are healers, healing cells. And so, you know, in addition to the active red blood cells, you have the, the fact that this tissue has undergone some kind of a polytrauma 
And it's, by the way, from the upper left part of the ventricle in, in the heart, this tissue, striations that are very similar to that. And that's the, the chamber that actually pumps the blood to the rest of the heart. Wow. The tick miracle has one thing that is absolutely remarkable, and that is it has been continuously bleeding, very, very small trickles of blood, but it continues to produce fresh blood. So there's a little dimple in the host. The dimple in the host has heart tissue in it. That heart tissue is continuing to produce blood that's trickling, you know, it's coming out of the dimple, trickling along the surface of the host. Now you can tell it's fresh blood because the fresh blood is underneath the blood that's on top is coagulated, right? Wow. So it's, you know, it's in the process of coagulation. But the blood on the bottom of the host, when you look at it and you look at also the pressure from the interior of the dimple outwards, you can see that the pressure is moving out. The fresh blood is underneath the partially coagulated blood and that there's no way you could fake that. Mm. You know, how would you introduce it from the top down and make the fresher blood coming from the surface that coagulated and the, the non-fresher one underneath be the one that's still liquid? You couldn't do it. So again, it continues to bleed. And between, you know, this miracle happened in 2006. And of course, when it was examined in 2011, you can see that it continues to this day to have fresh blood with, by the way, active red blood cells in that blood, wow. as well as the active white blood cells, macrophages in the process of healing, right? Engulfing, phagocytizing, lipids, you know, fat yeah. cells, you know, dangerous, et cetera. The last thing I just want to say, just to make the mystery complete, is that in two of the hosts, Buenos Aires and Tixla, they attempted to do several what's called polymerase chain reactions to see if they could, they could obtain an amplifiable DNA profile. Here's the mystery. There is actual molecular constituents of DNA in the blood and in the tissue. Yet every single time, through multiple tests, adequate samples... Fresh blood. I mean, you've got living tissue. How old could the blood be? Mm -hmm. the, it continues to bleed. It's fresh blood. So the point is, is, is there an amplifiable profile in this blood? No. Multiple attempts at polymerase chain reaction. No amplifiable DNA profile. Why isn't it there? It would be there in every other human being on the earth. And I just, it's a mystery. Yeah. I mean, if God doesn't want us to know, or maybe Joseph you know, obviously he was a foster father of Jesus, didn't have a DNA profile that was contributed to Mary because God was his actual father. Could be a variety of explanations, but this is mysterious indeed. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's not just a scientific mystery and quandary. It really is scientifically inexplicable having all the signs of a modern miracle. Yeah. I love that use of the word mystery, but mystery doesn't mean... I think a lot of times we think, oh, Scooby-Doo, let's just solve it. We get enough clues. We can pull the yeah. mask off and we have an answer. But a mystery <laughs> is something to very much dig into and allow yeah. ourselves to enter into a place of wonder. What's yeah. your encouragement for people who maybe stumbled upon this conversation or who are just, you know, very a little, a little cautious, a little concerned? Oh, well, you Catholics are going to find any excuse that you possibly can to believe this. What would be an encouragement if somebody really wanted to dig into this themselves and look at the science? Yeah, if you want to, there is a very fine book published by Dr. Ricardo Castagnon Gomez. And it's unfortunately, it's in Spanish, but you can Google translate it or <laughs> Fiverr translate it. So you can just get a translation of that very cheaply. It's just called The, the, the Eucharistic Miracle, Tixla, Mexico, Chim Chilpancingo. I can actually send you a link if you have that uh, sort of capability. Yeah, we'll share it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll and share it because it's a Kindle book. You can get it. But here's the important thing. Or Cassian Gomez, in the 19 appendices of that book, has every lab report. And all those laboratories are secular. Mm -hmm. It's not like the Bob Spitzer Catholic Laboratory did the DNA test, or the Bob Spitzer Catholic Laboratory did the histopathological exam of the living tissue, etc. These are all secular laboratories in the United States and in Mexico and other Latin American countries as well. And so you can see from several different labs, you have 13 different scientific experts on the team. You can see the full lab reports yourself and the 19 appendices of that book. And I can send you the link. That'll get you started. Mm -hmm. And by the way, just if you want a personal testimony that's so interesting, 
Cassian Gomez actually started off as an adamant atheist. Wow. For scientific reasons, he was an adamant atheist. After he examined the Buenos Aires host and later the Tixla host, he is now an ardent, not only an ardent Catholic and believing Catholic, but an, he, he goes out and lectures about the real presence of Jesus wow. in the Eucharist. He's mastered the doctrine himself. Dr. Frederick Zugabi at Columbia also was the, the chief pathologist for the examination in New York City, was a chief pathologist for the examination of the Boyce Iris host, says the same thing. It just, uh, it just jaw dropped him to find mm-hmm. out. He didn't know that he was examining tissue from a Eucharistic host. Wow. He, when he heard his jaw just hit the desk and he just said, well, that's impossible. You can't have a living tissue that comes from a host. <laughs> yeah, but you can. Yeah. And he do. Yeah. And Father, you do. it's yeah. just, it's amazing to hear it. It's amazing to know that this is something you've dedicated your life to, to have these conversations about that intersection. I want you to yeah. imagine for a second, you meet somebody who comes to you and, and maybe they're a fallen away Catholic or they're a, a very actively practicing Catholic. You get to picture the person and you get 60 seconds to tell them something good, true, and beautiful about the Eucharist to maybe inspire them or to challenge them or just to share with them your own love of the Eucharist, what, what do you say to them? I think the exegetical evidence is overwhelming that Jesus intended to give us his real body and blood in the Eucharist. It's not just evident in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, but it's everywhere present, too, even in the formulation of the Eucharistic uh, formula being given for you, being poured out for you. Now is the implication. The second thing is that these Eucharistic miracles, if you study them closely enough, you're going to wind up like Dr. Ricardo Castagnon Gomez. You're going to move from uh, you know the absence of faith in the Eucharist. You study those lab reports, you're just going to be jaw-dropped like Dr. Frederick Zugabi, etc. Mm. The, the key point is, it's so overwhelming that this is real a living cardiac tissue with real blood, AB blood type, which, by the way, characterizes not only all the Eucharistic hosts, but the Shroud of Turin, et cetera. And the third thing I would say is the Eucharist has had a huge, profound effect on me, my vocation. I would not be sitting here as a priest right now if I had not made on a bet in Lent when I was at college with Burke Martinez, if I had not said, yeah, I'm going to go to daily Mass too, because he was doing that for Lent, I started going, and all of a sudden, after Lent, I got hooked. I kept going to daily Mass. I just couldn't stop. There was something about it, but it started transforming me, transforming my heart. I used to be a hard numbers guy, very utilitarian. Give me the facts, Mm ma'am. I don't want anything else. Don't give me silly Billy. And then all of a sudden, I'm uh, not only going to daily Mass, I mean, all people would say, you know, you know, Spitzer, uh, you're changing. I said, no, no, I'm still the, the hard, you know, utilitarian, you know, just the facts, please, guy that I always used to be. And they go, well, yeah, you still are a rat hard utilitarian, but less so. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of the last guy to figure it out. But when I did figure it out, I thought, well, what's doing this? I'm not purposely orienting myself. And it was like core on core loquitur, heart speaking to heart, mm-hmm. receiving the Holy Eucharist into me. Jesus's heart was kind of, you know, attaching itself to me. It was like, you know, I was becoming used to him as a friend. And you know how it is when you're in the presence of a friend long enough, they rub off on you. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. Jesus started rubbing off on me. And look at what happened to me. (laughs) And he's pointing to the collar, folks. (laughs) Father Spitzer, it's a beautiful story. Tell us where we can follow your work and continue to see all that you're doing. Yeah, just go to majacenter.com. We've got so much free material there. Uh, You can get a huge encyclopedia of the faith there. It's called Father Spitzer's Resource Book. You can also go to all the free articles. You just hit on free articles. We also have the seven essential modules for young people where we have all the videos and all the doctors and experts explaining what's going on in near-death experiences, Eucharistic miracles, the Shroud of Turin, the evidence for the resurrection, et cetera, et cetera. Very good stuff, but magiscenter.com, M-A-G-I-S-Center.com, that's your place. We'll put it all down in the show notes. Father Spitzer, thank you so much for joining us. We're grateful that you joined us today. Once again, we'd be grateful for a rating, a review, share the episode with your friends, with your family, post a link up on your social media. Know that we're so happy that you're with us. 
Our series is not done yet. We have one more episode coming next week. A bonus episode of sorts with Father Malachi Napier, a CFR up in the Bronx, an incredible guy, an incredible story of conversion, an incredible love of the Eucharist. You're not going to want to miss it. Make sure you follow our show. We'll be back for our final episode of this season on the Eucharist next week. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.